Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. This week is the last week for our Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian series, and I have to say, I think it's been a fascinating one. Uh, Beginning with John Malia's 1982 Conan the Barbarian, it has been really interesting to see how these films have developed over such a relatively short period of time. And we still have a couple of interesting films to talk about today as we explore how the sword and sorcery genre evolved as it moved into the 90s. But I do want to take a second to talk about what's coming next on Get Me Another. We thought very long and very hard about what the natural choice would be to follow up Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian. Absolutely. And I think we found the perfect complimentary series. Well, ultimately, I think there was really only one choice. And we, we, we hope you'll join us this spring for Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally. Oh, love is in the air in spring, Chris. Absolutely. And it's going to be, we're going to be dipped in chocolate and rose petals uh, coming up soon, everybody. Oh, it's going to be romantic as fuck. I tell you that. But before that, we have a a special bonus episode that will be coming your way. Uh, It will be the first in a new bonus episode series that we're calling Don't Get Me Another. In each Don't Get Me Another bonus episode, we'll explore a big movie that missed the mark and that Hollywood subsequently shunned. In a sense, the Don't Get Me Another films are movies that had they hit might have been trendsetters, but alas, it was just not to be. Which is not to say that these movies are bad, just that they didn't connect with audiences at the time. And I'll I'll even, uh, spoiler alert, our first one that we're doing is a masterpiece <laughs> that is also uh, widely a joke. I mean, to the degree that it's almost... Its title has become a synonym for bomb. Yes. Join us. We hope you join us in a couple of weeks for Don't Get Me Another Ishtar. Oh. Oh, we're very excited. Very excited. Telling the truth is a dangerous dangerous business. business. But before that, we have a couple more films to talk about for Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian. And our first film today is a sequel to a movie we discussed earlier in this series. This is Deathstalker 2, Duel of the Titans. He came back for the adventure. He came back for the romance. But most of all, he came back for the money. You mean you would have helped me without the money? I didn't say that. Deathstalker 2, Duel of the Titans. Where's Deathstalker? Somebody looking for me. Stalker! You came back! Quite popular demand. He has returned to fight for a fallen princess. It's a matter of life and death. You gotta help me. So begins a long and perilous journey. Many dangers, witches, dragons. Let's cut down on the tourist trade. He will be pursued by bounty hunters and assassins. You gotta get up pretty early in the morning to catch the Prince of Thieves. He will do battle with mercenaries. (laughs) Amazons. An evil sorcerer. And a wanton princess. I could just eat you alive. Bones and everything. At the cutting edge of danger. 
at the brink of civilization. Hey! He will meet the challenge. Whoa. And at the Warlord's Fall, Thief will become king. Deathstalker 2, Duel of the Titans. Deathstalker? Uh-huh. Is that your first name or your last name? Now, I have to say, originally, we were going to do Deathstalker 2 much earlier in this series, at the same time that we were covering Deathstalker 1. But then we watched the film, and we realized that not only is it very different from its predecessor, but that it might fit in our concluding episode, because I think it is really an indicator of where this genre would go as we move from the 80s to the 90s. Yes, and as we get into this one, to go all the way back to our very first series, Get Me Another Batman, this is the shadow of the Conan sword and sorcery trend. Amazing. It's not a parody of the genre. Not exactly. But it is a comedy and it does have meta moments about the genre and even indeed even the first film in the Deathstalker series. It really does. It, which is very similar to how The Shadow starring Alec Baldwin handled uh, the superhero trends of its time. Uh, so I, I found it very interesting. And they're kind of the precursors to, you know, going... Uh, perhaps more full tongue in cheek, although we don't really have a full on parody parody like Mel Brooks style or anything. It's pretty close. It's it's yeah. it's walking the line. Um, Deathstalker 2 was produced by Roger Corman under his New Horizons label. It was the last of several sword and sorcery films he produced in Argentina. Ironically, Deathstalker 1 was the first. And as a consequence, you'll see some of the same sets and costumes that you saw from Deathstalker 1 and the warrior and the sorcerers, although by this time, uh, they are looking a little worse for wear. <laughs> yeah, they are. Deathstalker 2 was directed by Jim Wynorski, who listeners will remember as the credited screenwriter on Roger Corman's first sword and sorcery film, Sorcerers. This is his third outing as a director after The Lost Empire and, of course, Chopping Mall. Oh, Chopping Mall. One of my favorite movies. And <laughs> uh, and uh, this one, uh, the composer is the same, and it, it shares about half a score. Not literally. They are. It is different music. But I even looked. There was a uh, – the soundtracks were put out as a double soundtrack uh, somewhat recently. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I, 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 I'm not sure. I think it might be out of print, but uh, I was looking. Uh. And while Neil Rutenberg is, is the credited writer, apparently the screenplay was largely written by Wynorski, R.J. Robertson, and star John Terleski. So – Rob, let's get to the heart of this. Deathstalker 2 could not be more different than its predecessor. It makes the transition between Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer look like a, a genial tonal shift. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, to use your Superman analogy, uh, does this go from Superman to Superman 4? <laughs> the quest for peace but it's it's somehow it's more entertaining than superman 4 like it's it's i guess that wasn't a flat comedy it's almost a parody but it's not quite yeah. it is, its tongue is firmly in its cheek it is a flat-out comedy i might make the comparison to the shift from gremlins to gremlins 2 the new batch 
I mean, it's oh, okay. that kind of tonal, like, it's, yeah. it's, that's the only thing I can think of that comes close. Apparently, the original script by Neil Rutenberg uh, was more in line with the original film, and Wynorski and Terleski came on board. They moved it in the direction of a full-on self-aware comedy. Yeah, there is a lot to this that if you like the tone of Chopping Mall, yeah. you will love Death Soccer yes. too. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and what I think is so interesting is that it points the way to where sword and sorcery was going to head in the 90s as it largely migrated to television with shows like Hercules, The Legendary Journeys and Xena, Warrior Princess. Those shows always had a distinctly tongue in cheek vibe. They embraced anachronistic language and references. And perhaps unwittingly, Deathstalker 2 is the compass pointing the way into the 90s. Yeah, I, I don't think any Hyborian age uh, had pro wrestling rings in it. No. And oh, God, so that is gets- one of the best. Oh, my God, we'll get to that. Uh, first off, we should say Rick Hill does not return as Deathstalker in this film. Instead, the title character is played by John Terleski, who was previously featured in Wynorski's Chopping Mall. His interpretation of Deathstalker is so completely different as to be unrecognizable from Rick Hill. I mean, he feels like a character out of an 80s sex comedy. Absolutely. Like, you could have lived him out of, like, Hot Dog, the movie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, He could have been in a police academy. He could have, like... No, yeah. He's he's Deathstalker as Carrie Mahoney. There's no question. (laughs) A Porky's. Just take your pick. The film also stars Monique Gabrielle, John Lazar, Tony Naples, and Maria Sakis, who previously played the Sorceress in Corman's The Warrior and the Sorcerers. We open with a scene in which our new Deathstalker sneaks into a castle to steal a jewel from the villainous Sultana. And the sequence plays like a low-budget Indiana Jones set piece. I mean, it's it's so 80s that it's replete with ninjas. It's got ninjas, Rob. Yeah, I also think uh, it's, it's one difference from an Indiana Jones sequence is that uh, it ends with someone turning directly to camera. <laughs> to deliver a oh my favorite my favorite moment we're good oh my god all right so rob we we we've said i think i think we've said this before but we love on here on get me another when they say the title of the movie as dialogue i don't know why i love those moments it's it's so sublime it rarely happens when it's a sequel with a numerical designation but that's what happens here come on come on yeah i'll have my revenge and death stalker too the beauty of the english language is that the sound too is many different words oh i love it i love it i I love that little musical riff there it plays over and over again to the point of insanity but it's awesome yeah, that one reminded me a bit of, and it's around the same time, I think, 87, right? Um, it reminded me of the earworm 
in From uh, Slaughter High. Slaughter High. Yes. yes. I was blanking on Slaughter High. Uh, not that they sound exactly the same, but it's that kind of synth sound and it's a little it's a little bouncy. Yeah, and it's got it's, a little hook you know, in it that repeats, you know. I want to mention that uh in in the the stronghold where he's stealing the jewel, you see the giant skull from Zeg's stronghold in the warrior and the sorceress uh in the in the room above where Deathstalker steals the skull. I just wanted to mention that. Deathstalker soon meets Rena the Seer, also known as Princess Evie, and after an extended bar fight in a very cheap tavern-looking set, he learns that she is a princess in exile after an evil sorcerer named Jarek took over her kingdom, and he agrees to escort her back home in hopes of helping her regain her throne. A couple notes on the tavern fight. The Pigman is back from Deathstalker 1 yeah. in recycled footage. And I, I thought that was all going to get a pig man, but there, he shows up later. There's a couple of pig men who show up as Jarek's flunkies. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. And, and I do love that footage because the pig man's sitting at a table and there's a pig head being served on the table. <laughs> yes. And at first you think he's going to be mad, but what happens? He looks at it and then he says, ah, ah fuck it. We just eats it. Yep. That's... And he just eats. He He's a cannibal pig yeah. man. Yes. <laughs> um, there are... Uh, this is a scene with some numerous breasts. I'll say that that you know again, it's that's Corman's favorite special effect is uh, is breasts, and they are in this movie. And uh, you know that's just the way it is. Um, we get a couple of great moments that are like very sort of echoey of movies of the era, like the Indiana Jones whiskey moment from Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. We get that. There's a scene where Deathstalker's running around a corner that's kind of like, and then kind of the runs Star back. Wars, Star thing. Wars. Um, Oh, and Evie asked the same question we did back in episode five. Deathstalker, is that your first name or your last name? Yeah, and then for the rest of the movie, she pretty much exclusively calls him Stalker. Yeah. Because, I mean, I... <laughs> and, and, and his name is a running joke throughout this film. Yes. There are a lot of people that are incredulous about his name and are asking about it. So they are... This is part of that tongue firmly in cheek where they're... they're He's been saddled with a character named Deathstalker, <laughs> yeah, and he just mercilessly makes fun of it, uh, as well as dresses him uh, less like a Conan the Barbarian and more like Jim Morrison in all leather <laughs> pants, <laughs> like a vest thing. And yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he refers to himself as the Prince of Thieves, and I know this was a few years before Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, but uh, that's all I can think of when he says it. Oh, and yeah. Like, and he thinks that. He thinks the quest is going to get him into the, the the legends. And when he asks if it will, Evie replies, yeah, right up there with Conan. And I'm like, okay, this is the kind of movie we're in. And it knows what kind of movie it is. Like, it's not, it's not trying to be something else. No, I mean, there is, even the fights in this are, they're staged as comedy. Yes. Right? So they, but they can well be fun. staged as comedy. They're like, well staged. The yeah, it's not sloppy. Uh, you know, the sets sometimes look like a sitcom set from the 70s or right. something. But <laughs> that, you know, that, that tavern is, yeah, oh, look, yeah. looks a little yeah. rough. Yeah, it's just fun. Uh, Absolutely. Ridiculous. Uh, there's a ton of modern syntax in Deathstalker 2. Like, there's no attempt at quote-unquote period dialogue. And it's a fantasy world, so I guess in a sense it doesn't really matter. But... But we get modern idioms like I call him like I see him and must cut down in the tourist trade, which is also a precursor to those 90s uh, television shows that I mentioned, but feels very far away 
from John Malias as Conan the Barbarian. A little bit, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, we're introduced to the evil sorcerer Jarek, played by John Lazar. Uh, And Jarek is the type of villain who practices sword fighting with live targets. Uh, John Lazar is probably best remembered for his performance as Z-Man, the villain of Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which if you've seen that movie, you'll never forget it. Yeah, and he does uh, uh, He does a pretty good job in this one, too. Uh, everyone, all of the villains yes. uh, in this one are just uh, scenery chewers. Absolutely. Yeah, and his character in this one, it reminds me a little bit uh, if John Waters made a sword and sorcery <laughs> film, this would be Absolutely. his villain. Yes. Jarek yes. would be his villain. Yes. There's no question. By the way, I would love to see John Waters sword and sorcery film. That would be amazing. I would. Yeah, yeah that would be incredible. Uh, Jarek has taken over the kingdom. And I love this by making a clone of Princess Evie. Yeah. I honestly, Rob, did not expect so many cloning stories in our Get Me Another Conan <laughs> series. And the first tip that the clone Princess Evie is evil is her headboard. Holy shit. She has the most terrifying headboard I've ever seen. It's like got faces contorted coming out of it, like souls trapped inside Freddy Krueger's chest in Nightmare on Elm Street. It is disturbing. It is. The other thing that I love the most about the uh, the the Rena real Princess Evie look and then the <laughs> evil clone yes. is the hair. Oh, so the real yes. princess... Her hair is down and very yeah. plain, yeah. and it looks much more like a simple, like late seventies, early eighties hairdo. Yes, the evil princess. Oh, Clone, Rob, it, she is rocking late eighties. I love it so much. Bang hair. God like help her, me, I oh. love it so. <laughs> oh, it's like it's like Diana from V. You know, it's like you know, it's that <laughs> yes. that that. It's just oh my goodness. Um, also, I'd say not only is her decorating taste questionable, she also eats people. And somehow her souls, I think, end up as the faces on the headboard. Although the face she puts up there looks nothing like the dude she ate. But I, I, I honestly, we never see that process, and it kind of disappointed me. Yeah, I just uh, chalked it up to clone stuff. <laughs> clone stuff, exactly. <laughs> clone stuff. Uh, yeah. Jarek teams up with Sultana from the opening sequence, who honestly has no real motivation other than help for helping him, except she hates Deathstalker. And they send some flunkies out to kill Deathstalker as he and Evie are on their journey. After they fail, we have one of my favorite bits in this movie, where one of the guy, where the guy does like the FaceTime call with Jarek using a pool of water. It is amazing. And unhappy Jarek stabs the dude through the pool of water. The sword comes up and into his head. I'm like, that is incredible. Uh, this movie's amazing. Yeah, and I uh, one of my favorite uh, it, leading up to that sequence. At one point, uh, Deathstalker is on his horse riding, and I I just wanted to call out. And I know it's not the case, but it's probably because of his character, Mike, and Chopping Mall. I swear to God, <laughs> while he's riding on the horse, it looks like he's chewing gum. Uh, <laughs> because I wouldn't be surprised. That is a move. Yeah, no, yeah, he might have it, been. It's, yeah. yeah. Most of this movie is Deathstalker and Evie traveling to Jarek's castle, getting waylaid by one thing or another, and then resuming their journey, which basically papers over the fact there's about 30 minutes of plot in this movie. But it sustains. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's fun. Yeah, like you don't. Sometimes you don't need uh, the hero of a thousand faces. You need the hero of 
one smirk. <laughs> <laughs> they find themselves in a graveyard that looks straight out of Plan 9 from outer space, down to the wooden headstones. Uh, they're menaced by zombies there, and then they escape. Yeah. Uh, next, they encounter a tribe of Amazon warriors led by Maria Sakas. Uh, and of course, she knows Deathstalker, and she's got a grudge against him. And this sets up one of the film's signature <laughs> scenes where Deathstalker has to fight to the death with the Amazon's champion. Now, Rom, I don't know if you remember this, but in the 1980s, pro wrestling was very big. I remember this. <laughs> and in particular, 1987 was the year of the epic WrestleMania three match between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. But none of that compares to the match between Deathstalker and Matilda the Hun, a.k.a. D. Boar, here credited as Queen Kong, as the Amazon champion. It is, it, first of all, it's a prolonged sequence, and it is incredible. I didn't time it, but... It's got to be up there with They Live in, yeah, in no, like it's length. It's got to be. <laughs> but what I love about it is that while it's totally hilarious and it 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 rides line because he's they're they're attacking him because of his crimes against womanhood yes. for being a womanizer, right? Yes. But what I love about this is the the one thing, and it's often for comedy's sake, but this movie gets right is that Deathstalker does not have it easy. No, he gets beat up. Yes. Like all the time in this movie. Yes. And they're playing it for laughs, but it's hard. And then he, of course he will pull it out, but they're doing things in this one that a lot of the, uh, you know, quote unquote, more respectable, bigger budget movies got totally wrong when we yeah. were covering them where it, everything just came too easy. <clears throat> Looking at you, Talon. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, calling back to our very first episode with uh, the sword and the sorcerer, bravo, that that is well done. I mean, we should say, when I say this is a wrestling match, there is literally a WWF-style wrestling ring in, like, the middle of a clearing. I believe his head gets smashed into a turnbuckle, yeah, just like a pro wrestling it match. It absolutely does. And as I said, uh, his opponent is gorgeous ladies of wrestling star Matilda the Hun, a.k.a. D. Boer, who is here credited as Queen Kong. She was also in Spaceballs, where she uttered as a line that lives rent-free in my head to this day, I'm the bearded lady. Who are you? One of the freaks. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. Uh, following the match, Deathstalker is seduced by the Amazon queen only to take off when she insists they be married the next morning. And I had the feeling that honestly, Deathstalker, that seems like a pretty good deal right there. Well, and how when that wedding proposal comes, <laughs> of course, Deathstalker is drinking wine or water. Yeah. It really doesn't matter because... A full-on spit take. Literal spit take. Literal, full-on, giant spit take uh, when the word wedding is uh, mentioned. And then I believe he leaves. And when she notices he's gone, she just goes, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently, Maria Sakas was the only actress uh, who was not playing their role in a comic fashion. Wynorski told her to play it serious and we'll do the comedy around you. Yeah, sometimes you need the uh, the straight man, right? Yeah. You know, you need your Abaddon Costello. <laughs> Deathstalker and Evie 
split up for a bit, but Stalker returns just in time to save her from being lowered into a cauldron of boiling something. And it's a scene straight out of the Batman TV series. That is literally, I think, one of the uh, the cliffhangers from the Batman TV series. I, except in the Batman TV series, they didn't talk about uh, lowering you halfway in where it wouldn't kill you, but you would never experience pleasure in your nether regions ever again, <laughs> or however the heck they phrased it. Uh, that is true. Uh, they would have just implied it in the Batman TV series. They wouldn't yeah. have explicitly the, said a, a, The censors wouldn't let that go on ABC. <laughs> oh, yeah. Deathstalker kills Sultana, but nevertheless, Jarek brings her back to life, seemingly for the sole reason that we had not yet seen her breasts. Um, and so that way we had one more chance. That's why he brings her back to life. And apparently that was a breast double for actress Tony Naples. Oh, I should mention, by the way, this movie should come with a warning, a seizure warning for flashing lights. Because there's a scene there where if you are prone to flashing lights, look away or you may end up on the floor. Yeah. When Jarek brings Sultana back, it's with strobe lights and kissing. Yes. yes. Well, that's how you do it. That's, uh, you know, that's... Uh, It's a classic resurrection technique right there. I mean, you compare that to the resurrect Conan's resurrection in in Conan the Barbarian. I mean, Valeria wasted all that time, you know, painting all those little symbols on him. She could have just kissed him and turned on the strobe lights. Yeah. Uh, Deathstalker is captured and strapped to a table in what I have to think is a deliberate reference to a classic Roger Corman film, The Pit and the Pendulum, because there's literally a pit and a pendulum. It is also a reference to another classic film. It is. Gold Finger. Yes, and we actually get the line, do you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to die. Amazing. Both movies today are just shameless in borrowing lines from like (laughs) massive blockbuster movies. I would have just ended the sentence at shameless. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a scene where it appears that clone Evie is going to eat Deathstalker. And this is where I was a little disappointed. We didn't get to see it because I wanted to see how she ate someone. Uh, And the Amazons show up in time for a big battle, which makes liberal use of the footage from the final battle of Sorceress. Yeah, well, she doesn't eat Deathstalker, but this is a point that I have to get into. (laughs) Deathstalker actually has sex with the evil clone of Princess Evie. Well, can you blame him with that hair? That amazing (laughs) 80s hair? My goodness. Now, this is a magic trick for me, which I always say, where the hero just, and he knows that she's evil. It's not like a trick. Oh, no, no. Okay. And he does it. And somehow with the tone of this movie, and I guess also I'm an idiot, you just don't care. You're like, yeah, of course. Fantastic. And then, and then the real Evie comes up and then you're like off to the races for the uh, to, leading up to this final battle. Yeah. Uh, I will have to mention that, that clone Evie is in the final sequence wearing the same costume that Lana Clarkson wore in the first Deathstalker film. Uh, one of the few costumes she wore in that movie that did cover her nipples. Yes. Yes. And I, oh, and and Evie, the real Evie here, uh, she does more to save the day at the end of this movie than Red Sonia. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> in that yes, whole movie. Yes, absolutely. She has got agency in a way that most of the women in these movies do not, with the exception of Valeria in the original Conan. Hundra. And obviously Hundra. Uh, you know, she's the she's the main. But yeah, no, she's great. Clone Evie and real Evie have a fight, and Clone Evie is stabbed. And I love the way like her body fades out of existence, but the knife is left behind. That's super cool. Honestly, yeah, the her clone clothes, melting is like, oh. Yeah. Like the, her clothes should have been left behind, too. That if they had gone all the way, that would have been the thing would be her clothes there. Yeah. But the knife is left behind. And there's a terrific final fight, sword fight scene between Deathstalker and Jarek. And it's honestly, I think it's one of the best sword fight scenes we've seen in one of these films outside of actual Conan movies. Yeah. And, and this is where it still has jokes all throughout it, though. And so it is, it, it's not like they're trying to be serious, but they are. And I think we, uh, you know, we've, we've touched on this with other comic movies that are doing the comic version of something where when you're doing the comedy in action, the action still needs to be good yeah. for the comedy to play. Now I'm not saying like, you know, doing, you know, massive wire work or whatever. It doesn't have to be the most impressive. That's not what I'm saying, but it has to be good. And, and there has to be choreography because so much of the comedy it, it can be physical. Uh, absolutely. The movie that comes to mind is the the lightsaber duel from Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, uh, the, the Hong Kong film we talked about back in Get Me Another Star Wars. And, you know, it was a full-on, this was a full-on comic film, but that lightsaber sequence was incredible. Yeah, and, and, and I think the sword side fight here is comparable to that. Uh, apparently, Lazar and Terleski were both experienced in stage combat and did their own sword fighting. In fact... Uh, in the earlier sequence, when he's he's doing the sword fight against like the practice guys in masks, mm-hmm. like he's killing the apparently one of the guys in masks was Terleski as one of the masked swordsmen because oh, he he had the ability. Awesome. So they just say, "Hey, we'll put a mask on him. He won't know him." Um, it's only why slightly pay, why under pay for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in a get me in another Conan the Barbarian first, we end with bloopers over the closing credits. Just in case you weren't sure what kind of movie this is. And each blooper ends in a freeze frame. It does. Yeah. It does. So this movie doesn't end with a single freeze frame. No. Oh, no. oh it's great. No, that is. Yeah, it, it, it is fantastic. And I really think it's particularly interesting how as and we're going to talk about this in a second. Deathstalker 2 is the bellwether for where sword and sorcery goes in the 90s. By this point, in the late 80s, the sword and sorcery boom that had been kicked off by Conan the Barbarian was starting to run its course. And most of the films in this genre at this point were low-budget efforts and that more often than not went direct to video, which this film did, by the way. But it wasn't long until the sword and sorcery genre moved to television, specifically the realm of direct-to-syndication series. Now... A little bit of history for the kids out there. Once upon a time, there was a wonderland known as syndicated primetime television. From the late 80s to the early 2000s, syndication provided a platform for shows that were too atypical, too niche, or perhaps just too strange for the broadcast networks. This was the land of Friday the 13th, the series, War of the Worlds, Highlander, the series, Babylon 5, Pensacola, Wings of Gold, 
Jack of All Trades, VIP, and of course, both Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And it was here that Sword and Sorcery found a home with Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and its even more popular spinoff, Xena, Warrior Princess. Shows I do remember watching at the time they were on, and they are delightful. Absolutely. And they launched a few careers as well from behind the camera. They did. And a number of writers came out of that. Not related directly to Sword and Sorcery, but just to give you an idea, because you may have heard this if you weren't alive back then. (laughs) (laughs) One of the biggest shows on television was a syndicated show that was really goofy. Baywatch. Baywatch. That was not a network show. It was syndicated only, and uh, which I think allowed it to be more easily internationally syndicated uh, in a way that was less common. Yeah. it Actually, it started out, the first season was on NBC. NBC canceled it. It went into direct to syndication, ran for another 10 seasons, and became the most watched show in the world. Yeah. And uh, spinoff, Baywatch Nights. Baywatch which, Nights. This is just to say that when when you, we're talking about the Hercules television show and Xena, uh, this wasn't like UHF. No. This was national they were probably getting larger ratings than, you know, uh, what would be considered a hit today. Absolutely. Uh, because uh, the landscape was just, there was less. There's no question. It was one of the developments that paved the way for cable and streaming. And what happens is the syndication market sort of fundamentally changes in the early 2000s. But these were these were developments that were part of the, the change from sort of the broadcast era of three broadcast networks to the era we find ourselves in, which is the wild, wild west. And for, I mean, both our US listeners and international, this also crosses the, I believe, the 1996 telecommunication Act in the United States that passed and became law. The short version is before that, there was a lot less consolidation and a media company couldn't vertically own as much stuff. And afterwards, it paved the way so that things like Disney Plus would be legal. Yeah. Prior to that Telecom Act, I'm fairly certain that would have been non-negotiable as far as being the studio and distributor and secondary market and blah, 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 yeah. just uh, all of it would have been, uh, you, you weren't allowed to do it. So you had a lot more independent producers and studios that, you know, networks and things were almost forced to work with because yeah. they couldn't, they, they were prohibited from doing it all themselves. And you, you had a much different landscape with that. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's also, you know, you, you get these moments in transitions, where you know the the rules of one world still apply but some of the aspects of the next world uh you know the next uh, you know kind of realm are 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 kind of starting up so you have this overlap like for example there are people you know and I I'm one of them who love the the cinema of the 1970s in in particular uh the exploitation cinema of the 1970s and one of the reasons that was possible is because in the late 60s you had the end of the Hayes code and you know the um, what was possible in terms of content opened up wide in terms of depictions of violence, sexuality, etc. Uh, and at the same time, you still had in the seventies the the circuit of drive-in movies that provided a platform for these. Uh, you, you had the, the video revolution hadn't taken over, so you had this kind of like golden moment where a lot of things were possible. And I honestly think that it is, it is true of television in the 90s. You, you would, 
Certain things were no longer in effect, but other aspects had not yet changed enough. And you had this sort of sweet spot. Yeah. And uh, that was, it was a fun time. Yeah. The success of Hercules and Xena even led to primetime syndicated adaptations of both Conan and Beastmaster, as well as paving the way for the final film we'll explore in this series, 1997's Call the Conqueror. Who are you? Call of Atlantis. You're wasting your time here. Every man in my legion is of noble blood. My blood's red as any man's. He was a warrior slave until fate made him king. Long live Cole! All slaves of Illusia are now free. Go too fast, Cole. Fast enough. But in his search for a queen, Panara is pure as virgin snow. We've met. She's not that pure. He was seduced. My queen! Join me, and the earth shall be our empire. By the powers of darkness. You said he was dead! The dog knows a few tricks, that's all. Now, Cull alone has the strength. Stop him! To take a stand against evil. What are you doing? I can't take a man's life. Now you tell me. Find him. In the queen's name, lay down your arms. In the king's name, lay down yours. Kill him. Raider! And then we'll rule together. But he is about to discover that magic holds the greatest power of all. From Hercules the Legendary Journeys, Kevin Sorbo is Call the Conqueror. Call the Conqueror, also known as Call of Atlantis, was a character created by author Robert E. Howard prior to Conan. He first appeared in a story called The Shadow Kingdom, which was published in August 1929 in the pages of Weird Tales magazine. The first Conan story, published in 1932, was actually a rewrite of a Cull story. Basically, Cull is to Conan as Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is to Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I've been wanting to use that analogy for years. And this was my opportunity. Uh, in Robert's mythology, Cull was from a much earlier time than Conan, the Thurian Age, before the oceans drank Atlantis. Exiled from Atlantis, Cull was at various times a slave, an outlaw, a gladiator, a soldier, and like Conan, would become a king by his own hand, ruling the kingdom of Volusia. In fact, Unlike what was presented in John Milius's Conan the Barbarian, Robert E. Howard's Conan was never a slave and was never a gladiator. Those were elements that Milius borrowed from Cull. Development on the movie that would become Cull the Conqueror started in the late 80s as producer Dino De Laurentiis was looking to do a third Conan movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But as we mentioned before, that deal was up following Red Sonja and Raw Deal, and Arnold was looking to move on to other projects after the success of movies like The Terminator and Commando. So without Schwarzenegger, the project languished in development hell for years until the success of Hercules' The Legendary Journeys launched the career of Kevin Sorbo. Already playing a sword and sorcery here on television, Sorbo seemed the natural choice to take over the role of Conan, except for the fact that Sorbo didn't want to take over a role vacated by another actor, which honestly, Rob, makes no sense, because how many people have played Hercules 
over the years. Nevertheless, the film was written into a cull movie, and here we are. And the film has this interesting credit based on the worlds and the characters created by Robert E. Howard. And even more oddly, in some markets, the film carried the subtitle Son of Conan, which makes no sense in any regard, neither in the movie or in the mythos. And they they make a very uh, strong point uh, throughout this movie to have people keep uh, dissing Cull as a barbarian. Yeah. That word gets thrown out a lot. A lot. Cull the Conqueror was written by Charles Edward Pogue, who also wrote Psycho 3 and Dragonheart, which came out the same year, and directed by John Nicolella, who was primarily a television director on shows like Miami Vice, the fantastic series Crime Story, and Rob... The Heights. Oh. So here's a guy who knows how you talk to an angel. Yes. Charles Edward Pogue was particularly vocal in his disappointment with the film. According to him, the film was originally intended to be an R-rated film, but Kevin Sorbo refused to star in an R-rated film, so it was altered to be PG-13. Pogue is quoted as saying, quote, The studio relented the demands of an imbecile and turned this very adult Robert E. Howard property into a family-friendly film, end quote. And I'm not sure how family-friendly it is either. I mean, this might be like family-friendly on the Dick Tracy scale of things because- I suppose, yeah. It is, uh, there's some, there's some funky well, stuff Well, there's a lot on. of stuff about, there's a lot of, like, there's no nudity, but there's a lot of sex and sim- there's a prolonged simulated sex scene. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, just showing nudity is far more wholesome than the weird stuff you do to not show it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, I think that's true. In addition to Kevin Sorbo, the film stars Tia Carrera, Thomas Ian Griffith, Gary Lightfoot Davis, Karina Lombard, and Harvey Firestein. Yes, you heard that right. Harvey Firestein is in this movie. Uh, it also has appearances by Sven Oli Thorson and Pat Roach, who by this point have become staples in these movies. I mean, they always play different roles, but they always show up. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it does... In a, in a way that some of our other series have not had, maybe Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween series, right? Yeah. But, but she's the because star she's the lead. of the movie. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's the star. Know? Having these uh, other, you know, like prominent yeah. uh, act character actors, but they're not the leads, having them show up time and time again, it really does provide this weird continuity. Like you, yeah. you get why the producers did it because yeah. you start to have – uh, you start to have similar feelings. You're like, oh, I know him. We're, we're here together again with, <laughs> yes. with swords and sorcery. <laughs> exactly. My first observation is that Cull the Conqueror feels very 90s. Uh, the music, the special effects, the tone, the general tone is very much like other mid-budget studio films of that period. Now, you made an analogy talking about Deathstalker 2 that it was the shadow to Conan's uh, Batman. I, know I am going, going to make this. another analogy here yeah. and build off of that. This film that Cull the Conqueror is the spawn. Absolutely. To, to Conan the Barbarian's Batman. I mean, this is, I think even more, Spawn is a, another good example. Although this is a, this is like the cheekier version or it's trying to be, but they're both prime examples of in the nineties, what I would term Mountain Dew cinema. <laughs> 
<laughs> absolutely yes, yes. extreme yeah an X. you're gonna get guitar squeals you're getting like you know in your face we um, open with that sweet electric guitar riff <laughs> before we're plunged into a battle that looks like it was shot in griffith park Yes. Uh, and the battle, by the way, is actually a tryout for Volusia's Dragon Legion, led by General Terry Silver. I mean, uh, Talagaro. And just right off the bat, points for this movie for casting Thomas Ian Griffith, Terry Silver from The Karate Kid Part 3, and Cobra Kai, who's just awesome and frankly should be in more stuff, and I don't know why he isn't. Yeah, and uh, he's great in this. He's great I, in this. I love him. And the uh, – and I was just – he has been amazing in Cobra Kai, uh, but amazing I'm not going to go down Kai. that road. But just yeah, no, that's a whole. But he is amazing in Cobra. He's Kai become and, my favorite part of that show, and and I love and I love Johnny incredible. a lot. But uh, oh my goodness! Oh, he's absolutely incredible. In order to join the Dragon Legion, Cull has to prove himself by fighting Talagaro, not with his chosen weapon, the axe, but instead with a flaming sword and blindfolded for some reason. A nobleman's weapon, exactly. And and Talagaro beats him and tells him he can never join the Dragon Legion because he's not of noble blood he's a barbarian uh you know whatever that that means but but word comes back that the king has gone bananas and is killing off his next of kin so talagaro rides the rescue and cull goes with him for some reason honestly i don't know why he'd bother he was just told he's not good enough why would you go off with this dude uh and that's part of the problem from the beginning here why does cull want to join this club like, we're never given any insight into who Kull is or why he wants to be part of the Dragon Legion. He just does. This is one where you open up with that VO kind of info dump that in some ways is, I mean, it does set stuff up slightly, but it's also kind of like, you don't even need it. It yeah. all comes out in line in the film. Yes. But man, oh man, I, I might have liked this movie better if I'd seen the 10-minute the beginning where we find out where what Cull's life was like before all of this. Yes. Because I think that might give you some of what you're looking for. Something. Yeah. I, I, it's one of the problems in this movie. I have no idea why anybody's doing anything. So it all seems so dumb. Like every character seems motivated by the fact that they're dumb balls. Or horny. Or horny and dumb. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we might as well get out of this out of the way. I'm not often one for criticizing actor performances, but holy shit, does Kevin Sorbo suck. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Like he's flat as a board, and and I think he can work in 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 Hercules, where you're playing this sort of tongue in cheek role. But part of this movie's problem is that it doesn't know if it wants to be Hercules: The Legendary Journey or it wants to be Conan the Barbarian, because you can have one or the other, but you can't be both. And in being both, he comes off as flat as a board. Yeah, because you've got jokes about like you know. You know, women wanting to sleep with him. Stuff that feels very of that syndicated wink, wink era of television. Which all would work in Deathstalker 2. Yes, yes. And, but here's the other thing with, and and so totally it's not sure, but I have another, another suspicion about this. And this is just me. And uh, I think that the sword and sorcery genre needs to be a little bit disrespectful. It needs a little bit of an edge. I'll buy that. And it's it's funny because this one, it's it's almost too respectable, right? Yeah. Now, I, I'm not saying that this was a $100 million movie, but you, you look at this compared to the others and you're like, oh, they have extras. Yeah. And 
it's it's shot in a modern way. Uh, you know, they have sets that they built they that have were not real used sets. from fourteen other movies. Yeah, they they clearly have a gazillion lights with all of the gels and the cookies and the jibs and all of all the dolly yeah. and the crane that you want. And they've got real actors who already have a name in some fashion uh, or have been around forever. And it's going to be released by a real studio and they've got international distribu- distribution, all of this. Right. And at the end of the day, I'm just, it, it, part of that is just like, it, it's like when the blues is played on a $4,000 guitar and it's been like produced to death on an album. And I'm like, uh, you're supposed to be played on a shoebox guitar. Yeah. And I think for me, that's, that's one of my biggest problems with this is it just feels too respectably made. Yeah. <laughs> if I can say no, that. No, I agree. And, and, and even the, the uh, John Melinas Conan, which in terms of production is impeccable, but there's, yeah. there is a tone of disrespect in terms of, uh, you know, not, kowtowing to authority you know conan is a is is someone who you know is a character in that film that you know essentially it's his journey to learn that his god is full of crap yeah i just had the the 10 cent word pop in my head transgressive conan yes. the barbarian is a little transgressive it's a little yes. dangerous right yes this is safe as anything yeah, like Universal Pictures would never make the $200 million version of Conan the Barbarian. But at some point in history, someone might take a look at, at Cull, the script, and go, or, and, you know, maybe not the original script, but the movie that got right. made. And someone would think, this is safe and it's not going to, you know, we're not going to get the, the little, little old ladies with blue hair angry at us for <laughs> releasing this one. And we're not going to have, a, you know, some pastor probably, uh, some pastor will totally oh, some pastor boycott this will movie always. because of the demon. Yeah. But most of them won't because it'll be like, oh, yeah, the good guy goes and he, he slashes the demons and who cares, right? Yeah. It's just not dangerous enough. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, anyway, the king's off his rocker and Cull ends up getting into a confrontation with him and fatally wounding him. Before the king dies, he names Cull as his successor. I guess that's how it works in Volusia because no matter how obviously mentally ill the king is, what he says goes. It's just dumb. It's the worst succession system I can imagine. If I was I, I if I was one of the leaders of Volusia, I wouldn't want Cull on the throne. Who knows who this guy is? Honestly, the ruby in the belly button from the barbarians makes more sense than this. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say this. A lot of the way this movie works, do, for me, doesn't work a ton, but I will give it this. This is not copying the beats of the movies that came before, and it's not doing it like you're supposed to. It starts with him becoming king, which is usually the end yeah. of these types of things, if if it, if you even get there. Right. And then it's the complication of, you know, the monkey's paw of it all. Like, oh, you exactly. thought you wanted to be king, but now you didn't know all this crap's going to be coming your way. As a, as a, a thought, I, I really like that idea, right? And it's yes, so different. It's not executed well here. No. But the, the theory works. Yes. Cull encounters one of the members of his harem, Zaretta, and who he previously met somewhere else, but I was honestly not clear of where they met or what their prior relationship was. But Cull is certainly keen to take advantage of the fact that he's king, or at least until she shames him into leaving her alone. And and Zaretta has one of the few really good lines in the movie, do not mistake compliance for enthusiasm. Yeah, and uh, it's actually a really great moment 
which gets almost completely undercut because in in a normal movie, if you started with that strong of a dislike, you then kind of need to slowly change minds and win hearts. Yeah, no. Or you could do it in two scenes. Cull decides to free the slaves of Volusia, I think because he wants to impress this chick. It's because he's horny. I mean, it's it's a... it's a noble goal. It, no, it's, but he, he's horny. But like, it's, I think it's because he's horny and, yeah. and yeah. And he's prevented from doing so by the stone tablet of laws that allows slavery. He's so like goofy about how he goes about stuff. Like there's no way, like the nobles are already against him and he's not making it any easier. You know, so the nobility of Volusia, including Talagaro, you know, decide to start plotting against him and they're pretty dumb too, because rather than just assassinating Cull, like, they get involved in this plot to resurrect Akavasha, the sorceress queen of the Acheron Empire, the hellish kingdom that preceded Volusia. There's one flame remaining of the Acheron Empire that just shoots up into the sky like an oil derrick gone, you know, berserk. Um, and up close, the flame has some spawn level special effects. Yeah, they needed uh, a medieval Red Adair to take care of this thing before she could be re- resurrected, but I guess it didn't happen. Also, you know, resurrecting the evil sorcerer or sorceress uh, so that you can do your dumb uh, king takeover and then having that blow up in your face. <laughs> I will say is. that is a trope in these movies uh, 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 more than more than once. Honestly, just put some strychnine in his guacamole like that. Would, <laughs> just That would do it. They resurrect the mummified Akavasha and thankfully she turns pretty quickly into Tia Carrera. So that's good. Um, although the wig on Tia Carrera. <sighs> wow yeah the the styling is isn't the best but uh, uh you know to say something though she knows what movies she's in yeah that's true and and she no that is absolutely true she is exactly she's really good she is exactly this the kind of scene chewing villain in a good way Right. And that never goes over. Yeah. Honestly, the movie doesn't give her enough. Yeah. I wish she stands around looking at this column of flame for too long. Yeah. Yeah. But she's, she's really good in it. Um, you know, for it, you know, for what, where it's going, you know, no, no one's going to win if- an Oscar, but I don't want them to in this movie. <laughs> Um, I want to actually talk about hair for a moment, if I might. Uh, I have a bit of pet peeve in period or fantasy period movies and TV shows when they go through all the trouble to make cool and authentic looking costumes, but they have haircuts that look like they just came out of a salon. It's one of those things that I always notice, and I feel like it was all over the place in this movie. Uh, Thomas Ian Griffith, who is great. Should have had his slick back Terry Silver ponytail. That would have been the way to go. Yeah. Anyway, I like that Akavasha is continually, there's the priest who helps her bring her back to life, uh, who kind of looks like Peter Capaldi, but isn't. And she just keeps, she keeps punishing the priest by burning his face. And it's just like, there's no, you know, loyalty is not a two-way street with Akavasha. Yeah, she heals him. She hurts him. She heals, it, it really is a, a terribly abusive relationship. The new king decides to get married. So the plan is to get him to choose the resurrected Akavasha, which he does because she's Tia Carrera. Now, granted, there's also some magic involved. Um, and also, Cull is an idiot. And Zaretta is a scold during all of these scenes. And no wonder he wanted to get together with Tia Carrera. Well, yeah. Horny. Honestly. Uh, he, he is very horny. But it, it goes both ways because Colin and Akavasha get married and now she's the queen. Great. Does she kill Cull then? 
No, she does not. Because <laughs> that would be smart. And she's a dumb dumb too. Well, that was her original plan, Chris. She had the smart plan. But then she got horny. Yeah, she got horny. She wanted, she wanted to keep sleeping with Cull, so she kept him alive. And instead, she puts him in this trance-like coma, and it's like, just kill him and you win. Yeah, there's not many hot dudes in these movies, though. She likes her Sorbo. <laughs> I mean, I get it. But, you know, Cull, of course, escapes the trance with the help of Zoretta's brother, who's a priest. And there's a funeral for what they think is the now late King Cull, which turns into a free-for-all. Uh, what Cull turns up alive. I do like Cull posing as his dead self and then kind of jumping up. That's kind of awesome. Like that, that to me was the best thing in the movie. Yeah. yeah. By the way, Talagaro at this point is trying to, is second guessing resurrecting the demon sorcerers as a means of taking out Cull. Like he's clearly, Akabasha actually has a line, which, you know, you Star Wars fans will remember. She says, I have altered the pact. Pray I do not alter it any further. Indicative of this movie, when Cull is told that he's married a 3,000-year-old sorceress, Cull responds, she said she was 19. Yeah, uh, and that's... Uh, it, that feels like it's out of Hercules' The Legendary Journeys. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like... What movie are you? There's only one way to defeat Akavasha, and that's to acquire something called the Breath of Vulca. Therefore, they must sail to the far north in order to find it. And Cull contacts an old associate named Juba, played by Harvey Firestein, in order to get a ship and a crew. And, uh, you know, it, Juba is not to be trusted. And Cull and his company are attacked as soon as they're out at sea. Why he brought the guy along to begin with? Because the guy didn't seem to want to come. And, and this is uh, like Independence Day yeah. style Harvey Firestein, yes. right? Yes. It is. And and look, you know, God bless him. I'm sure this stuff paid for the development of all kinds of Torch Song trilogy yes. Uh, yes. like uh, art. So I'm just like, you take that money and run, baby. Oh, I, I don't blame it. Harvey Feierstein at all. He should absolutely. Yeah, and he's fun. Take that. It. Take that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question. No, I, I honestly thought it was going to be a more over the top performance than it was. Yeah. I also thought, and maybe this is just me. Are there ever people that feel like they're bigger for you personally? Such that I'm like, Harvey Firestein's in this. And I just naturally thought he would be in it more. Right. But it really is like he's in it for this kind of sequence. And then and then it's, he's done. Yeah. Really. They, 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 uh, Cull drops him off the ship because, again, oh, why are you take him? He didn't want to go. And he insisted he come along. And then he, you're surprised when he, he betrays you. <laughs> the breath of Volca is kept inside a giant face carved into the wall of an ice cave. And there's a riddle on the wall that tells them, quote, the cause be the carrier, which apparently means that only a woman can carry the breath itself. Thankfully, they happen to bring a woman, Zaretta, who can carry the breath. And she basically sucks it up and they kind of put a light dusting of fake ice on the actress. And well, okay, now she's got the breath. I do like that there's a graveyard of broken ships of all the people who tried to get the breath before and failed. Yeah. And this is one of the weird things in the sequence where apparently she also just knows that you have to take your shirt off in order to get this breath. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But of course, there it's you know family movies, so they're only showing it from the back. But that somehow just makes it more weird yeah. and illicit. Yeah, I, like you're like what? And then there, you're just uh, I don't know, I don't know. 
uh, Talgaro shows up in time to snatch Zaretta, uh, leaving, you know, killing her brother and leaving Call for Dead. And he plans to take her back to Volusia in order to use the breath to rid the kingdom of the demon sorceress he helped put on the throne, which is honestly the first smart thing anyone's done in this movie. Uh, at this point, Rob, I'm kind of rooting for Tia Carrera, even when she goes full demon. Well, you know, we never get to see what her kingdom would be like. Might have been great. You know, might have been fantastic. I, I like the nighttime. Yeah, I'm not. I, you know, maybe. You why, know. why do we need the sun? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, the moon gives off plenty of light. You know, she could have. You know, a, a electricity program of some kind. Who knows? All of the lava will provide the photosynthesis. That's for true. Our food. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Cull follows them back to Volusia, and he and Talgaro have a fight. Cull stabs him with his own sword, which, again, he's dumb enough to leave within reach of his opponent. Uh, and then the high priest tries to attack Cull with this snake-headed cane, but Cull literally shoves it down his throat and pushes him into this, this CGI fire. And despite the fact, this I thought was interesting, despite the fact that only women can carry the breath of Volca. Cull is able to take it from Zaretta and then use it on Akavasha. And I mean, are we saying that no one would have wanted to see Tia Carrera and Karina Lombard kiss? Because, you know, I feel like that's something a Roger Corman movie would have done. Yeah, but this has too much Red Sonia DNA. <laughs> you can't have a woman save the day, Chris. Not going to happen. Yeah, so instead, we have a movie that climaxes with Kevin Sorbo kissing a demon full on the mouth. Yeah, you could edit that into Spawn and that would probably play. <laughs> it would play. That mouth is disgusting. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Like, it's, yeah, uh, it's, oh, but wait. One more thing. Talagaro pops up one more time so Cull can kill him with an axe. Because, Rob, that's how a barbarian fights. With irony. Yes. And the axe is cooler than the sword anyway. Oh, definitely. And it gives him a visual distinction from, from Conan. Like, yeah. you know, the axe is a, you know... And in the end, King Cull carefully amends the tablets of law so he can achieve his political goals, but without unintended consequences. I'm kidding. He smashes the tablets with an axe and says, by this axe, I rule, which is coincidentally one of the, the title of one of the Cull stories that loosely inspired this movie. Basically, Rob, he installs himself as an authoritarian f that rules by force. I'm surprised he didn't go all the way and say, I am the law. But maybe because Sylvester Sloan's Judge Dredd was only a few years in the rear view, they're like, we can't repeat that. Well, we repeat the line from Empire Strikes Back, but we can't do Judge Dredd. Chris, he's uh, Cull is a man of the people. There's no way that a man of the people could possibly be a, a bad ruler. If they want to just rule by fiat and axe, that's, uh, it's going to be good for everybody. Yeah, no. Uh, history tells us that, that populists never turn into authoritarian dictators. Uh, we know this from history, Rob. Yes, especially if they have- From recent history. Yes, axes. <laughs> um, oh, Zaretta's hair, by the way, gets this white stripe like Rogue from the X-Men after, after having the breath. Uh, she gets the white stripe. Yeah. And uh, even worse, she has to marry Cull. Yeah, and they're going to have lots of- Cull babies. Yeah, his his yeah. his his blood will reinvigorate the kingdom. Um and and oh behind Cull's throne, I swear to God, there's a tiger on the wall that looks like the same tiger from the back of Rocky's jacket in Rocky 2. Uh which, and he is the tiger. They call him the tiger. That's it. Right? 
he's got the eye of the tiger in. Oh. He does start this movie <laughs> in exactly the same place that he ends it. Hornily. <laughs> yes. So, oh, I mean, the big problem with this one, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the idea. It's just, it's, it's both, it suffers from a lack of clear identity. Like it doesn't know what kind of movie it wants to be. And it's too damn respectful. Like at the same time, it's, you know, and, and I think if it, if it had chosen a path, like Deathstalker 2 chose a path. It was made for a lot less money, but it chose a path. And as a consequence, it knew what it was. Call the Conqueror doesn't have a clue what kind of movie it wants to be. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it sounds like behind the scenes that uh, just from the little you said, uh, because, again, I can't read. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I I couldn't possibly do research. Um, illiterate. Anyway, I. Uh, it sounds like there this there was probably uh, different people pulling in different directions yeah. uh, behind the scenes, and you can really really feel it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's amazing that you know, fifteen years after Conan the Barbarian, you know, sort of where that genre went with this sort of the last film of this cycle, um, and and just you know, it's like oh, that's uh, you know, and and. I mean, that basically brings us to the end of another series. Uh, I And I have to say, having completed five series now, each one really does feel like a journey. And this is no exception. It, yeah, absolutely. The films I enjoyed the most were the ones that sort of found a tone and stuck with it. Whether that was more serious movies like Conquest or Hundra or The Warrior and the Sorceress or more comical ones like... Ator, the Fighting Eagle, yes. or the Hercules films, or Deathstalker 2, like that are more comic. It, it's it, if you have a clear point of view, whatever that point of view is can kind of be made to work. It's the movies that don't have a clear point of view that uh, I think kind of that flounder. And Cull is, is kind of uh, honestly maybe the best example. Well, and, and I think to go hand in hand, just to piggyback on your point about the actual stories, um, I think that point of view comes from. Uh, these are all single hero movies. And if you know who that hero and character is and you give it to us, yeah, I feel so much better, whether it's Conan or as you say, Ator or Beastmaster again, Beastmaster Beastmaster or uh, <laughs> his name is Dar Rob <laughs> uh, or Hundra or whomever there, you know, uh, the warrior character. I forget the, the, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the David Carradine character. Uh, he doesn't have a real character name, but you, he is a real character and you get that, you get that point of view. And I yes. know therefore what the movie is. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it some way. We'll, we, you know, we'll, we've talked about doing some bonus episodes. I think that will happen in the not distant future. Uh, where we'll talk about, you know, maybe the Ator sequels and the Beastmaster sequels. There's that 2011 Conan, the barbarian movie, which, which we might cover. But I'd love to see in this because I've become really – I always liked – I like fantasy in general. I always liked Sword and Sorcery, but I've, I've, I've gained a fair affection, a fair degree of affection for it uh, despite its flaws. But I'd love to see two things. One, I'd love to see Arnold Schwarzenegger come back for a legacy sequel, King Please. Conan. Like that's Please. the legacy sequel you need is to him yes. as the, as the old Conan on the throne on one last ride. Um, you know, like, like, like the later Arthurian legends where it's, you know, sort of the, the doomed ride of the, the last ride of a King. And I think there's something you could do with that. I think Arthur, I think, I think uh, Arnold would be great. 
Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. The other thing I'd like to see once that happens, I'd love to see like a streaming series like Netflix or Amazon or whatever that did a more faithful adaptation of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories. I think that could be really cool. Um, like, you know, cause even John Malinas's film, which is amazing, but it isn't necessarily super faithful to the, to the stories. And I think there's something you could do with that. Uh, once you do King Conan, uh, you know, that that's that's clearly what the world needs. And because we're all for typecasting, I want Robert Eggers to do King Conan. <laughs> oh, yeah. With oh, Schwarzenegger. My God. That would be amazing. Please. That would be amazing. Yeah. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are working on a new series. Get me another When Harry Met Sally, which will start this spring. And before that, look for a special bonus episode don't get me another Ishtar in the next few weeks. Uh, additionally, we might have another bonus episode in the works for the near future as well, but we'll 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 wait on that. And and like I said, we will we'll probably do some get me another Conan the Barbarian bonus episodes because popular demand insists we cover the Ator the Fighting Eagle sequels. I mean, there's just no way around that. By popular demand, you mean me? Yeah, I mean, that's... that's. I know, there's also popular demand. We have had legitimate popular demand, my goodness. We have, but even if the people had said no, I would have said yes. Oh, yeah, uh, no, that's no, all no, no. At, yeah. the, at the end, we're the final arbiters of what we do, which is the yeah. great thing. It, it, it's nice sometimes when people actually want to hear it. Yes. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed taking this journey with us. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone, Rob Lamorgis, and if you've enjoyed our show please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And as always, tell your friends about the show, tell your enemies, tell that 3,000-year-old demon sorceress who says she's 19, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. I'll have my revenge and, and Death Stalker too. Oh my god, that was that's when I was like, oh, this movie's a work of genius. Oh yeah.